Hello, welcome to TanakhStudy.com. I'm Yael Ziegler. We are at the end of Perak Bet, which is with, uh, beginning with Pasuk of Gimel, which is a description of Am Yisrael's slavery. It picks up on uh, the, the initial story in Perak Aleph, where we saw that the king had enslaved, the, had enslaved Am Yisrael. Um, but we have here a very intense description, which seems to describe a period much later than where we started in, in uh, Parak Aleph. Pasuk Kaf Gibel begins, And it was in these many days, And the king of Egypt died, And Am Yisrael groaned from the work, and they cried out, and their cries rose up to God from their work. Um, now, what we have here in this description, first of all, is the death of the king of Egypt. We don't exactly know why that's relevant, why here we're first told that the king of Egypt died. What does seem to be, I mean, all of the different biblical interpreters try to understand what's the connection between the death of Egypt and the groans of Am Yisrael. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of those various interpretations. Most of them are, are quite speculative. But I do want to say one thing, which is that the death of the king of Egypt, uh, I think the most important point is that it doesn't change the decree of enslavement. But what we no longer actually see, at least explicitly, is the continuation of the decree of the genocide of the baby boys, of the killing of the baby boys. That never reappears again in the story. Um, actually, the, the previous story that we had at the beginning of Perak Bet, where we have this family that is working to keep this child alive, or a group of women, including the daughter of Paro herself, who keeps this child alive, that seems to somehow be the final word on the throwing of the babies into the river that we never again see. But we do continue to see the terrible enslavement. And even the death of a king of Egypt does not change this decree. That suggests that this decree is in place and is going to remain in place. And maybe that's the connection between the death of the king of Egypt and the terrible cries of B'nai Israel. Now, these cries reach God. What's interesting in this pasuk, and the Ibar Benel points it out, is that we're not told by Yizaku El Hashem. We have this sense of alienation, certainly enslavement, can cause a sense of alienation between the people and God. They're very focused on their terrible oppressions, on the terrible work, and they cry out. Now, these cries rise to God. By the way, the, the uh, pasuk in Dvarim, Perak Kavav, Parshat HaBikurim, um, which we also say in the Haggadah, seems to actually offer a different interpretation of this pasuk and actually explicitly says that, that Am Yisrael did cry out to God. But that's not what's written here in this pasuk. In this pasuk, they're crying and somehow these cries reach God. Um, let, let, let's look at what happens in the next pasuk. God hears their groans. God remembers his covenant with Avram, with Yitzchak, and with Yaakov. And God sees Elohim, and God knew. Um, what's, I think, important about this section is that it's a very dense section in, in, in all of the information that it gives. First of all, it tells us about Am Yisrael's suffering, and specifically their cries. We have four different words that describe their cries. Vayanhu, Vayizaku, Shavatam, and Naagatam. This, I think, gives us a sense of the depth, perhaps the breadth, the scope of their pain. Every synonym that we can find, we use to describe their cries. But I think what's more interesting is the re-entrance of God. 
in order to match these four expressions or four descriptions of Am Yisrael's pain, we actually have four verbs that describe God's response. Vayishma, vayizkor, vayar, vayeda. Right? He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he knows. And what's, I think, significant about this is that in it, we haven't really seen much of God in the story thus far. Uh, we have a sort of a, a vague appearance at the end of Perak Aleph where we're told, Vayetev Elohim Lamialdot, God does good to the midwives. Um, and other than that, we don't God is really not so present in the story. But here God sort of bursts upon the scene, returns in full forth with a, a, a real sense of God's presence. It's a strong reappearance. He reappears here in order to intervene in Amisrael's suffering. The Ramban points out that this is the end of Hester Panim, that there was a period in which God hid his face from the people, and that this section shows us that God has made a decision to reverse that situation and to um, come back into the people's lives. What's also significant about this is that these four verbs actually reference God by name, right? Which again gives us a sense of how strongly God has appeared. We had another mention also in Pasuk of Gimel, and so there once again we have this sense of God, his his reappearance, he is very specifically named as the subject. So God has made here a decision to remember his covenant, to see his people, and to intervene. The last point that I want to make about this little dense section is what doesn't appear in the section, and perhaps somewhat surprisingly, and that is Moshe. Moshe, of course, was the very um, uh, prominent protagonist of all of the Perak so far, of all of Perak Bet, and of course his role in Perak Bet was to intervene to help other people suffering, to help the oppressed from the oppressor. Well, here Moshe's uh, lack of appearance, I think his absence from the section, is very significant, and it should be duly noted. Where did Moshe go, um, and for how long did he go? Well, we know where he went. He went to a Midianite. He seems to have uh, despaired of his people in Egypt, and he goes to this Midianite, and he marries the Midianite's daughter. And of course, we saw at the end of the last section that he has a child, and he names the child on a name that that recalls, that suggests his sense of alienation. Ger haiti be'eretz I was a stranger in a foreign land. And the sense of alienation here, I think, also remains somewhat ambiguous, as we don't really know what is the strange land. What is he commenting on? And I mentioned at the end of the last class that perhaps he's just commenting on his sense of alienation from the world, from civilization. And in fact, uh, Moshe seems to have, you know, sort of faded out from the picture. He made a great effort to restore morality to the world. That effort, at least in his eyes, seems to have been unsuccessful and Moshe is no longer there. And this, of course, is going to take us into the next scene where God is going to commission Moshe in order to go back to Egypt to save the people from the suffering. Um, but this, I think, his absence here is really very noted. The last point that I want to ask is, is we have here this sort of vague description of how many years have gone by. This is rather characteristic of the Tanakh, not to tell us uh, exact numbers, exact dates. The Tanakh, of course, is not a history book. It's a book 
book of theology, a great deal of time has passed. That's what we're being told here. And Am Yisrael is sinking deeper and deeper into the suffering, suffering that perhaps also alienates them from God, as I said before, um, or causes them perhaps not to be able to see uh, anything other than their own burdens. Uh, the Ramban actually uh, does offer a number. He talks about 60 years. Uh, this number, I think, emerges from the fact that when we re-meet Moshe, when Moshe goes to greet Paro, he is 80 years old. And of course, in Perak Bet, he's a young man, right? He's a young man who's growing up. So the Ramban talks about 60 years. It's actually somewhat of, it seems to be a rather um, well-founded speculation, but again, it remains speculative. Okay, let's go on to the next section. Kimmel opens a very long parsha. It's 39 psukim long. It starts in Parakimel Pasuk Aleph, and it only concludes in Parakdalet Pasuk Yud Zion. Uh, when I say very long parsha, I mean that there's no parsha tuchar, parsha stuma. There's no uh, traditional end of the parsha, which leaves a few spaces on the line. Um, the story is the story of the commissioning of Moshe as messenger. The Mila Mancha, the key word of the story, is Moshe. It appears 14 times in the story. The story is about Moshe. It's about getting Moshe to do his mission. It's about uh, reintroducing Moshe to the suffering of his people. And it's also about introducing Moshe to God or introducing God to Moshe. Now, one of the things that I think that we have to note here is that in the first part of the story, when Moshe acts, and he acts, I think, with uh, great integrity in Perak Bet, and we've mentioned this several times, he acts with great morality, but he never mentions God, and he's not necessarily motivated by religious reasons. He seems to be motivated by ethical reasons. Um, and, of course, we noted in our last class that Moshe is a product of two societies, of two mothers. Moshe seems to somewhat almost almost rise above um, ethnic considerations and maybe even religious considerations. He is looking to create a just world. Well, in this story, he he's going to encounter God for the first time, and that's going to begin the very long and, and gradual process of Moshe becoming the Isha Elohim, right? In this story, I think he has been until now a universal man of justice. Eventually, we're going to encounter Moshe. We're going to remember Moshe as a great religious um, figure, as a great man of God. Okay, let's look in Parakimel Pasuk Aleph. Moshe haya ro'eh et son yitro chotno kohen midyan, vayin hage et hatson achar hamidbar, vayavo el har ha'elohim choreva. Moshe uh, was shepherding the flocks of Yitro, his father-in-law, uh, or as the Ibn Ezra suggests, his brother-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he leads the, the flock into the desert, and he comes to the mountain of God to Chorev. Um, so several things here I think are significant. First of all, meeting Moshe as a shepherd. We know that the shepherd is a great symbol of leadership. We know this from Yirmiyahu, Perak of Gimel. We know this from Yechezkel, Perak Lamedalet, which describes the leaders as shepherds. Uh, we know this also from several other figures in Tanakh who start out their life as shepherds, such as David and others as well. And of course, this is considered to be a, um, a good path towards leadership. Uh, Shepard cultivates certain aspects of his personality, his nurturing, his caring, and it enables him to be a very good leader. Uh, Moshe 
takes the flocks of his father-in-law and he goes achar hamidbar. He goes into the desert. Um, and we know that probably this desert is one which has good grazing. Uh, not all deserts are so barren that they can't actually sustain any kind of life. So this is probably the kind of desert that we're talking about. But at the same time, this phrase, Achar Hamidbar, does generate, does trigger a certain kind of discussion among the Farshim as to why Moshe would go to the Midbar. Uh, I'll sort of boil down the discussion, which I think is a very interesting one, um, as a machlok, it is a controversy between Rashi and Sfarno. Rashi says that Moshe is motivated by ethical consideration, that he is afraid of taking his sheep to pasture on someone else's land, so he's afraid of stealing. Whereas the Sfarno says, no, uh, Rashi is, is uh, that's not the correct reading of why Moshe goes to the Midbar. Rather, he goes to the Midbar in order to find solitude so that he can um, find communion with God, so that he's in fact already looking towards some sort of religious relationship with God. And again, I mean, I think that the uh, machloket is an interesting one. The controversy is interesting because it revolves around the question of why Moshe is selected, why he's commissioned to be the messenger. Does God choose him because of his ethical, um, uh, because of his ethical persona, which is sort of the way I think that the shot represents it, and that seems to be Rashi's approach, or is he chosen because he is already a, a person who has developed himself religiously? There is no indication of this in the text, and yet this Sparna seems to go in that direction in any case. Okay, where does he come? He comes to the Har HaElokim, he comes to Chorev. We note, of course, that this is going to be uh, another word for Har Sinai, and we're going to see throughout this section that what Moshe is going to encounter is going to be a mini Harsinai, a mini theophany revelation of God. It's preparing Moshe to prepare the people for the Harsinai experience. And therefore, there's a lot that's going to happen here that is going to anticipate the Harsinai experience, not the least of which, of course, is that Moshe encounters God for the first time at Chorev. Okay, let's look in Pasuk Bet. Vayera malach Adonai elav belabat eish mitoch hasene, vayar vihine hasene boer baish, vehasene einenu ukal. Okay, so this malach Hashem, this angel of God, appears to Moshe in this fiery uh, torch from in this bush, and he sees, and the bush is burning with fire and the bush is not consumed. So what I think that the first thing that we have to note in this pasuk, of course, is that the center of the pasuk is the sene, right, which is mentioned three times. The sene, ha sene, the bush is always written with the defi definite article. The Ebenezer says this sene is so important that har sinai is eventually named after the sene. It originally was called chorev. In any case, the sene does, of course, anticipate har sinai in that God appears uh, to the people, Bo'er Ba'esh, right? The Ha'har Bo'er Ba'esh. The Har eventually is also going to be described as burning in fire. And the fire, of course, represents God. Right? The fire oftentimes represents God in Tanakh. The fire is something somewhat amorphous. It always moves upward. And, of course, it is something which is both beneficial in terms of its warmth, in terms of its light, but at the same time, it's dangerous and one has to approach it with a certain amount of caution. So God appears oftentimes in fire in Tanakh. One of the bigger questions that has been dealt with at great length by the biblical commentators is why God appears in a sinet, in this sort of bush, and many, many different uh, um, possibilities. 
have been suggested. This net is small. It's modest. It represents God's modesty. It represents the fact that God could appear anywhere. Um, perhaps it's thorny, and therefore it represents Am Yisrael's suffering. I'm certainly not going to conclude here, but a huge variety of opinions has been offered as to why specifically God appears in the Sineh. What's perhaps more interesting is the fact that the Sineh is not consumed, right? So that we have this fire, which is not consuming the bush. And of course, many have suggested that this isn't, it's not just a miracle, but it's a symbolic miracle. And it's symbolic of the fact that Am Yisrael may be trapped in this perhaps thorny suffering, but they will not be consumed. So that there is a message that's being given to Moshe in regard to Am Yisrael's situation as well. The primary message, I think, is really just uh, the theophany, is just Moshe meeting God's revelation for the first time. And in this regard, I want to mention, I want to just note that uh, just from a literary perspective, the word sne appears, as I mentioned, three times in this pasuk. There are actually uh, three sentences, and in each time, the word sne appears in a different place in the sentence. So that in the first sentence, the sne appears at the end of the sentence. In the second sentence, the word sne appears in the middle of the sentence. And in the third sentence, it appears at the beginning of the sentence. And we almost have this sense of Moshe approaching the sne. He is uh, sort of gradually coming closer and closer. And, and that feeling that is created by the pasuk is, um, I think, going to be a very important aspect of the theophany, which is really the question of how close one is going to come to God's revelation. And that's going to be a question that also is going to appear in Har Sinai, and also later on in the question of the Mishkan, which is the end of Sefer Shemot, right? Sefer Shemot is going to take us to this situation where we don't have a one-time revelation of God as, as in Har Sinai, but a daily revelation of God. And there as well, we're going to have the question of how close to come. Okay, let's look in Pasuk Gimel, Vayerma Moshe, Asura Nave'er'eh, Et Hamar'eh HaGadol Hazeh. And Moshe said, I will turn aside and I will see this great sight. Why is the sne, why is the bush not burning? And God saw that he had turned aside to see. And God called to him from within the bush. And he called to him, Moshe, Moshe. And Moshe said, here I am. Um, so first of all, I think we see that one of Moshe's great qualities is that he 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 turns aside to see. Um, so one could actually talk about this in in several different ways. I mean, one could talk about curiosity. Curiosity is the first step to knowledge. Certainly, is the first step to knowledge of God. Uh, the Midrash talks about Moshe as the one who sees, the one who sees the other, as we saw in the previous parak. He sees the Ish Mitzri that is hitting the Ish Ivri. Moshe is a person that in general turns aside to see and that this is the quality that causes God to choose him. That's a little bit midrashic, but I still think that it adheres to the general trajectory of the story. In any case, God calls him mitoch This is the beginning of God's revelation to Moshe or even the beginning of God's revelations in Sefer Shemot. We're going to see this, this phrase Vaikra elav Hashem mitoch something, right? That God calls to uh, to to him uh, from within something. We're going to see it several times in this book. God's going to call to Moshe min hahar 
from Har Sinai, Mitoche Ha'anan, from within the cloud that is on Har Sinai, and eventually at the beginning of Sefer Vayikra, Me'ohel Mo'ed, right, from the Mishkan. Uh, this phrase, therefore, seems to give us a sense of the continuum of God's revelation. It starts with Moshe at the Sneh, it anticipates and then continues in Har Sinai, where God appears to the entire nation and specifically to the entire nation through the medium of Moshe. And then finally, it continues, as I mentioned before, in the Mishkan. So this phrase also indicates that. And he calls to Moshe and he actually doubles his name, Vayomer Moshe Moshe. Perhaps many of you are, uh, are are familiar with other places in Tanakh where God calls to someone with a doubled name. It actually is rare. It's not very common. God only calls four people in this way, in this doubled name, Avraham, Avraham, Yaakov, Yaakov, Shmuel, Shmuel. What I think is interesting about the doubling of the name is that it, it not only indicates love, which it, I think is what some of the biblical interpreters say, but it also indicates that God is calling, he's commissioning someone to do a very difficult task. This indicates a certain kind of persuasion, Moshe, Moshe. But it also, I think, indicates a certain urgency. Moshe, Moshe, right? You've got to come now. The people are in deep trouble. And Moshe responds, Hineni. Moshe, Moshe responds with a certain uh, readiness to undertake this task. Vayomer pasuke al tikrav halom. Do not come near. Shal na'alecha me'al raglecha. Ki amakom asher admat kodeshu. What's interesting about Hashem's first words is that they're negative. Do not draw near, take off your shoes from your feet for this place that you are standing upon it. It is hallowed ground. It is sacred ground. So again, I mean, I think that it's interesting, and this maybe is the first lesson in the theophany, in the encounter with God and God's revelation, is to be careful not to come too close. The first lesson is distance. By the way, the book of Shemot is going to end with that sense, right? God's presence is going to be on the Mishkan. And even Moshe cannot enter the Mishkan. That's going to take us into Sefer Vayikra, where God is going to call to Moshe and teach him how to enter the Mishkan, how to enter the presence of God. But here already we get a sense of the difficulty of that experience. He tells Moshe to take off his shoes. There are no shoes in the place of holiness. We're going to see this again in the Yehoshua story. Yehoshua also encounters a Malach Hashem who tells him to take off his shoes. Uh, taking off shoes has also <clears throat> generated a certain amount of discussion why particularly one should not stand in a holy place with shoes. Perhaps I'll just mention for our purposes that, again, there's uh, um, an attempt to, to allow Moshe to come into contact with the ground. You don't want to wear something that separates you from Kodesh. That's one possible reading. Although if you really look at the uh, continuum of the Pasuk, it seems that taking off the shoes is limiting the person. In other words, do not come near, do not wear shoes, and perhaps shoes symbolize something about um, the person's independence or a person's sense of, um, uh, of their own self, which they have to nullify when they're standing before God. This certainly some of the Mepharshim, such as the Malbim, seem to go in this direction. Love, God no longer tells Moshe what not to do, and now he actually introduces himself. Vayomer, Enochi Elohei Avicha, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. So God introduces himself uh, through the Avot. I am the 
God of your fathers, the God of Avram, the God of Yitzchak, the God of Yaakov. We recall, of course, Pasuk uh, Kavdalid in Perak Bet, where we're told that God hears their groans and he remembers his covenant with the Avot. The last time, actually, that God revealed himself um, in some sort of revelation was actually to Yaakov on his way down to Egypt, where he promised Yaakov that just as he's bringing him down into Egypt, so he will bring him up to Egypt. In that revelation as well, God doubles Yaakov's name, Yaakov, Yaakov, so that also brings us back to that conversation. After that, we did seem to have a period of Hester Panim, a period in which God hid his face from the people. So since Bereshit Perak Memvav, we have not had this kind of revelation of God to a person. And so it shouldn't really surprise us that God introduces himself as the God of the forefathers. And then Moshe hides his face with Hester Moshe Panav because he was afraid of looking at God. There is a tremendous discussion among the different Midrashim and the different Mifrashim as to whether or not this is a good or a bad thing that Moshe hides his face at this time. I'm not going to get into it right now. I will just say that it's not necessarily um, up to us to conclude whether it's good or it's bad, but it certainly is. In other words, Moshe is afraid. That is the natural, the natural perhaps response to coming into contact with God is to be afraid to hide one's face. And what's important to understand about Moshe is that Moshe eventually is going to be the one who is described as having a panim el panim relationship with God, a face-to-face encounter. This is not something that is easy to acquire. It's not something that is obvious. It's something that must be learned gradually. We're going to have a very similar kind of situation, again, with Am Yisrael at Har Sinai, where God is going to appear to them, again, panim el panim, face-to-face, and they are going to become very afraid and they are not going to want to receive that kind of direct revelation. So that also reminds us of this section. And here, of course, we have the beginning of a very important process whereby Moshe, Moshe teaches us that even if one starts out afraid in one's relationship with God, one should still seek to acquire that panima panim relationship. That certainly is a goal. Pasuk Zion, uh, God now is going to offer Moshe the explanation as to why he is commissioning him. Uh, that's going to go on for several psukim. Vayomer Adonai ra'o ra'iti et oni ami asher b'mitzrayim ve'et sa'akatam shamati mipnei nogsav ki yadati et machovav. Right, God says, I have surely seen the suffering of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cries because of their oppressors, and I have known, for I have known their pain. Um, so three out of four of the verbs that we saw at the end of Perak Bet reappear here, Ra'a, Shama, and Yada. What doesn't appear is Zachar. He does not say, I remember the covenant that I have with Avram, with Yitzchak, and with Yaakov. I'm going to leave that point aside. We're going to pick up on that point. Uh, actually, in the next Parsha, we're going to pick up on that point. We're going to ask ourselves, when God does tell Moshe that he remembers the Brit, that's only going to be in Perak Vav. So we're not going to talk about that right now. But again, we do have this sense that uh, the, the end of Perak Bet, it leads us into this next section where now God is telling Moshe, I have seen, I have heard, I know, and therefore I am commissioning you. What am I commissioning you to do? We're not going to see that just yet. Note also that uh, God calls um, the people Ami, my people, right? Note again also the words Ra'o, Ra'iti. We have this emphasis on sight throughout the section. I think it certainly is connected also to the emphasis on sight in the previous section, right? God sees the people, human beings, 
have to see each other as well in order to bring about a moral revolution or some sort of moral change. And of course, Moshe is the correct one because Moshe knows how to see the other. And now God explains what he's planning to do. I've come down to save them from the hands of Egypt and to bring them up from this land to a good and broad land, to a land that is flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Knani, the Nechiti, the Emori, the Prizi, the Chivi, and the Yivusi. Okay, so there are several things that I think are important to note here. First of all, note that God uh, sort of implicitly challenges Paro here. Paro had been afraid in Perak Aleph, Ve'Allah min ha'aret, they will go up from the land. And here, in fact, God says, indeed, I have come, L'Haloto min ha'aret, to take them up from the land. These are exactly the fulfillment of Paro's fears. Now, where is he going to take them? He's going to take them to an Eretz Tova Urechava, to a good and broad land, and to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. This is, of course, the first time that we have the description of Eretz Israel as a land that is flowing with milk and honey. Um, we also have the description of Eretz Israel as a good and broad land. Now, the question of Eretz Israel being a good land is one that is going to come up again. In fact, the people regard Egypt as a good land. The word tova is going to come up, or the word tov is going to come up in the spy story later on, where the people are going to say, tov lanu shuv mitzrayim. Uh, it is good for us to return to Egypt. And of course, um, uh, Kalev and Yoshua are going to respond, uh, No, the land that God is taking us is a very good land. It is a little bit hard not to look at Egypt as a good land because Egypt is a land of fertility. However, what is interesting is that what's juxtaposed here to the word tova is the word rechava. It is a good and broad land as opposed to Egypt. Egypt is called Mitzrayim. It comes from the word Tsar. It is a narrow strip of fertile land. Egypt is actually, a, it's a big country, but the area around the Nile is the only area that really is good for uh, cultivation that is, that is a fertile area. It has always maintained the, the, the bulk of the population, even until today. And so Egypt is not a land which can be called Rechava. And so here, Eretz Yisrael is being called Rechava as opposed to Egypt. It is also a land which flows with milk and honey. This is a nurturing image. It's a, a land as mother figure, again, as opposed to the way the Meraglim described the land of Israel Eretz Ochelet Yoshva, it's a land that consumes its inhabitants. Here we're being told this is a land that gives to its inhabitants. It may be also in contradistinction to Egypt, which is not a nurturing place. It might be a place of great fertility, but it doesn't necessarily nurture its inhabitants. In fact, it causes them to groan and to moan and, and to cry out. Um, as to the, the description here of the six nations, right here we have only six nations, Sometimes it's seven nations, sometimes it's ten nations. The different biblical interpreters pick up on the different numbers and try to explain each one uh, in, its own, in its own context. I'm not going to talk about that right now. Let's go on to our next pasuk. And here God tells Moshe, the cries of B'nai Israel have come to me, and I've also seen the pressure, the oppressions, that Mitzrayim has been oppressing them. In Pasuk Yud, God concludes his, his uh, commission of Moshe by again using the word ve'ata, 
And now, this is what I really want you to do. Lecha ve'esh lachacha el paro. Go and I will send you to paro. Motzei et ami v'nei Israel imitzrayim. And take out my people, v'nei Israel, from Mitzrayim. My nation, v'nei Israel, from Egypt. So we have here perhaps two sides or two parts to Moshe's mission. First of all, he has to go to Paro. He has to represent God to Paro. And secondly, he has to also take Amisrael out of Egypt. These are, of course, two aspects or two connected parts of the mission. But in any case, what we have here is Moshe's mission. Now, what's going to happen in a moment is that Moshe is going to refuse. And uh, there are actually going to be a series of five objections or five refusals, some of which God is going to respond in a positive sense, and some of which I think are perhaps uh, generally perceived as uh, too much. Um, we're going to leave these five objections of Moshe for our, our next class. I'm just going to make one last point about Pesuk Yud before I conclude today's class, and that is the um, the juxtaposition or the phrase, Lecha ve'eshlachecha which is a phrase that we actually heard also in Bereshit, Perak Lamed Zayin, which was the Perak in which Yaakov sent Yosef to his brothers, right, to see uh, the welfare of his brothers. Of course, we recall that that story did not end well. The story of the sale of Yosef into slavery is, of course, the beginning of the story of Amisrael's slavery in Egypt. And really throughout the Shemot story or throughout the story, of Am Yisrael in Egypt, we do have a sense that we are looking to bring the story of Yosef and his brothers and the animosity between brothers. And of course, the even uh, the attempt at fratricide or, or certainly if not killing one's brother, certainly mistreating him, that story is going to have to come to a close. And we're going to find a lot of attempts to sort of um, bring that circle to a close. This is perhaps one of them. Here, when God commissions Moshe to go to Paro, he uses the same word when Yaakov commissioned um, Yosef to go to his brothers, thereby setting in motion the story of slavery. So we have the beginning of the closing of that story as well. In our next class, we're going to open with Moshe's first objection to God's commission.